Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Hurricanes, a tragic death in Yosemite National Park, and a finding that the Interior Department broke laws early this year when it diverted dedicated funds to keep national parks open during the partial government shutdown all were in the news last week. We also ran a story on a restored cabin at Mount Rainier National Park that will be used exclusively by search and rescue team volunteers and reported on plans by the Park Service to reduce the number of bison on the north rim of Grand Canyon National Park. You can find those and other stories about the parks at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, I interview a graphic artist who hiked the Appalachian Trail end-to-end and produced a wonderful book of sketches and photos depicting the life of hikers on the trail. Erica Zambello speaks with a local angler and fishing store manager about what makes Great Smoky Mountains National Park so special for anglers, as well as playing a role in conservation of the region's most iconic fish species. And we end with a commentary about the lack of a Senate-confirmed director for the National Park Service. The Appalachian National Scenic Trail, better known as the AT, has a pull on hundreds and thousands of people. It was the country's first long-distance hiking trail, blazed from northern Maine all the way down to Georgia. People take to it for various reasons. Some are content to hike just a handful of miles. Some try to knock off the entire trail, which is nearly 2,200 miles long. And some just dream about someday tackling it in whole or in portions. Sarah Kazar through-hiked the Appalachian Trail back in 2015 and returned home with a book in mind, one she called Hiker Trash. We've asked Sarah to join us today to not only explain the title of her book, but what motivated her to tackle both the trail and the book. Welcome to The Traveler, Sarah. Hey, thanks for having me. Hey, I was wondering, first off, if you could tell us, who are you? Tell us a little bit about yourself, and have you always been a hiker, or is this a a newfound uh, hobby? I've been hiking and camping for a few years now, Um, and I'm currently based in Philadelphia. I'm an illustrator and designer and avid outdoors person. (laughs) And so what drew you to the Appalachian Trail? Uh, I've been hiking sections of the Pennsylvania portion of the trail for a few years, Um, and kind of always drawn to those signs that you know this many miles to Georgia this many miles to Maine and it was always a back burner idea or dream and then um uh my father passed away and it kind of just put some new urgency into um tackling something like that so I um quit my job and kind of shut down my life and went for a really long walk. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. And and you cut your teeth on uh, perhaps the hardest section of trail. I grew up in New Jersey and have hiked a lot in uh, the Pennsylvania stretch of the AT, and it's, uh, it's, it's not some of the easiest uh, sections of the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> Pennsylvania is also known as Rocksylvania because it's so tough underfoot. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, falling in love with the Pennsylvania section it was definitely welcome to see these other landscapes 
It's a very cool way to see the country. Did it um, intimidate you to um, take on such a long-range project? I mean, some people take up to six months to hike the whole trail. Uh, yeah, and I did take six months um, to hike. And um, I think I probably didn't think it all the way through, which maybe was uh, <laughs> helped more than anything, honestly. I didn't research terribly well or prepare terribly well. I just kind of jumped right on the idea and kind of hoped it would work out for the best. And fortunately it did. And, and did you go north to south or south to north? We did south to north. Okay. Traditional. Mm-hmm. And, and you set out by, by yourself on the trail? Uh, actually, I was hiking with my ex-husband and we also made a lot of friends along the way. Um, you kind of make these little trail families. Um, so I've hiked hundreds of miles with people I just met. And now I think I will know for the rest of my life, likely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you run into any particular problems along the way? Um, I mean, you hit like the sorts of things you would expect, like, uh, weather in the beginning was kind of tough because it's snowy and rainy and you hike north and you go into those like stretches of heat and bugs and that kind of stuff. Bears were particularly out and about in Shenandoah. That was kind of cool and a little unnerving to see. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think it was kind of what you'd expect and also nothing like you could expect at the same time. Sure. Since. Sure. It's it's hard for people to um, take six months off from their life, as it, as it were, and embark on such a trail with the challenges that it presents. Did you set out with a plan to sketch for a book along the way, or was that an after-the-fact thing? Uh, yeah, so I did pack a sketchbook with me, and then um, it quickly became waterlogged and didn't make it through even the first 50 miles, and I ended up getting rid of that. Um, hmm. Then as I was hiking, I was really drawn to these trail shelters, which are located about every 8 to 15 miles, um, and they're extremely basic. They just have three walls and a roof, so you can get out of the weather or it's snowing, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and they're all built and maintained by trail volunteers, so they're all a little bit different. It's not like a, I mean, they're largely uniform. They have, like, their design but um there's just kind of something cool about seeing the community make those spaces and then Mm -hmm. watch the community take care of them so i began photographing the shelters i didn't really know what i was going to do with them um but i photographed nearly all 250 shelters wow Um, and then when i was going back through all the photos to make the drawings i was really drawn to the hikers finding like shelter in these structures. So the first couple drawings were just the structures themselves. And then they just really became more interesting when you found all these hikers with their backpacks and gear and stuff splayed all over the place and taking a break for lunch or dinner. Those were kind of my favorite moments really. Now um, you collaborated on this book uh, with a photographer, Nicholas Reichard. Yes. Mm-hmm. I met uh, Nick along the way. He was carrying 
all kinds of cameras with him and he was kind of just jumping into photography himself. And he was also taking lots of portraits of the hikers. So they, the drawings and his portraits really seem to go well together. Yeah, no, there's some, some interesting photos in there and it's a, a, a nice mixture of, of your sketches with his photographs. Um, the, um, the excerpts from some of the, the trail notes, um, trail entries that uh, you included in the book, um, were those from photographs you took or he took or did you um, sketch those? <laughs> those, um, those are just about my favorite thing. So every shelter has like a little beat up notebook in it where hikers will kind of check in or write a message or just kind of do a analog long form communication with each other. And, uh, there's one trail club, um, the Potomac Appalachian trail club in Virginia, who serves the mid Atlantic region. Um, they keep an archive of the log books for about five years and then they discard them. So I went down a few times and they let me come in with my scanner and set up camp and I was scanning pages out of the log books. And then, so the excerpts that are throughout the book are an attempt to literally bring voices from the trail into the book. Yeah, no, I think they do that quite well. They do that quite well. We've been talking with Sarah Kazar. Uh, she's a graphic designer, is that correct? Yeah. And who through-hiked the Appalachian Trail back in 2015 and came home and turned her experience into a book called Hiker Trash. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Sarah. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. We're back now with Sarah Kazar, who through hiked the Appalachian Trail in 2015 and uh, produced a book called Hiker Trash. And we've been talking with her today about her experience and what motivated her to hike the trail and what she came away with. So it sounds like um, most of your sketching was done at home after you returned from your trip. Yes, yeah. And I imagine you had a a ton of photos to go through and and try and decide which ones to to feature for this um, publication? Yeah, I had a lot of favorites and I was trying to... The ones that are in the book are, I mean, some of these shelters are built with local stone or logs or 
cinder block. I mean, they're just kind of all over the place. So I was trying to show the range of material. I, I seem to recall from my, my younger days hiking in, in um, Pennsylvania, and, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I, I thought there was a shelter that actually had um, a pipe from the spring running through the fireplace so you could create hot water if you wanted. <laughs> there is one also in Virginia that has its own solar shower. Like some of these are really elaborate. <laughs> Most of them are not that fancy though. How did a solar shower work? That was the Jim and Molly Denton shelter, I believe. I think I have that right. And yeah, I think it was just kind of a collected bucket of water that heats up with the sun. Uh -huh. uh, Everyone could just kind of take a quick rinse, which was a huge luxury. <laughs> I bet along the way. Now, um, what was the most interesting image that you included in your book? I definitely have some favorites. Um, there's one image in particular that's uh, actually it doesn't have a shelter in it, but it's um, a bunch of hikers kind of setting up camp at the end of the day on a ridge line. And the trees, I was trying to catch the way the light would hit the trees at the end of the day, kind of your golden hour. We have mm -hmm. about an hour or so left of daylight to cook up dinner and set up camp. I kind of love those moments of the day. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely, um, you sit back and you, re you reflect on uh, what you did that day and enjoy that beautiful evening light. Now, did, did Nick hike with you the entire route so you guys could kind of collaborate on um, what he would take pictures of or what you wanted pictures taken of? Uh, no, actually, I crossed paths with Nick on the trail maybe twice, and then I saw all of his photos much later on when he was starting to post them to social media. And I reached out about possibly working on this project, and he sent me... I mean, over a thousand images that he had taken. <laughs> mm. um, and he was really enthusiastic about it. So it just seemed like a really nice fit for the project. Yeah, no, that must have been uh, quite a, a challenge going through that many photos and trying to decide which ones uh, work best with your sketches. And uh... It was tough. There's, he does really excellent, excellent work. Yeah. What do you hope readers will take away from your book? I was really kind of just showing that this thing is out there and just a uh, inside look at the hike itself. I, I mean, honestly, this was an emotionally difficult project for me. As I had said, I had hiked the trail like not long after my dad had passed away. And at that time I was alternately processing or avoiding processing that relationship and grief so working on this project kind of kicked up a lot of that back up in good ways and bad though I mean it brought me back to some particularly challenging days I had but also days where I felt like I was really connecting to everything again and when I was out there it was really nice to meet people who were going through different life turbulence of their own and find that connection and healing out there and seeking shelter together. So I was just kind of trying to bring those voices in there. 
all together, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a, a whole gamut of individuals who hike the trail for uh, a whole range of reasons. Um, as you mentioned uh, in uh, some notes to your book, um, you, you met some uh, some veterans, I guess, the Wounded Warrior Project. Yeah, yeah. In the beginning, um, we met a few from the Wounded Warriors Project. And yeah, I was really, I mean, I don't even have a right word for it, but um, we met one guy who mentioned that he cannot sleep in the shelters at night because he still experiences night terrors and was worried he might attack someone in his sleep. We met someone else who was hiking ahead and he kind of would let everyone know like you couldn't quite ret- like control his reactions yet if you startled him on the trail so to make a lot of noise if you were advancing but the trail really seemed to be a cathartic experience for a lot of different things and those end of the day conversations were certainly something I will also carry with me for a long time yeah did you ever question whether you could make the whole hike in one fell swoop um i think i got to damascus which was about a quarter of the way in and was like yeah i could do this three more times (laughs) i think uh at the end in name i was really starting to like physically fall apart so that was the point where i was like i'm not sure if i can make it to the end but and you hiked all the way to maine like you might as well hike till the very end sure yeah did your family question um, your decision to hike the whole trail? Uh, no, everyone was pretty supportive about it. And um, they'd like to come out to visit during trail town as we pass through different trail towns, um, which was also fun to see. Some people came out and hiked little stretches with us, which was also a lot of fun. Did you come away from your experience with a different view of the trail? Um, I think the trail kind of messed me up in the best way possible. And this is like, all I want to do now is go hike another long trail. (laughs) (laughs) Pacific Crest Trail on the horizon? Yeah, it's on my radar for sure. So you have to explain the title of the book, Hiker Trash. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was kind of something I found along the way. You'd see it on stickers and it was sort of a kind of... um, an affectionate title, I think. I think I put it in the category of like beach bum or, you know, something like that. Uh, but it's definitely one that the community kind of wears with pride, I think. Sure. And on the, the cover of your book, it's a, a, a sketch of a shelter there. And uh, I couldn't help but notice, uh, I guess it's uh, five slash seven, Johnny Cash stepped out of the ring of fire here. Yeah, I really enjoyed that excerpt. I mean, I'm not a huge, huge Johnny Cash fan. I appreciate it. But um, yeah, I think it was a personal challenge to me. And I mean, working on the book was also challenging. Um, As I was working on the book, I was in the middle of a divorce from my partner of 13 years. And I... I'd hiked the trail with him, so he appears in a lot of the drawings. Um, and in hand with that, I had moved twice and started a couple new jobs and was just juggling all sorts of life things. So 
yeah, drawing the shelters and seeking shelter again, um, it all really resonated with me. And, and the Johnny Cash mention, was that just something you came up with or was that one, no, one of the that trail entries? A direct excerpt from one of the trail logs that I found. Huh. I, I doubt that Johnny Cash hiked the trail, but it's uh, interesting none, nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we've been talking today with Sarah Kaiser, a graphic artist who uh, hiked the Appalachian Trail from uh, Georgia to Maine back in 2015 and came away from the experience with uh, wonderful material for a book uh, that's just uh, hitting bookstops out there called Hiker Trash, Notes, Sketches, and Other Detrius from the Appalachian Trail. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today, and uh, best of luck with your book. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. The Grant Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Hi, National Park Travelers. This is Erica Zambello, and today we're talking to Daniel Drake, manager of Little River Outfitters in Townsend, Tennessee. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. So fly fishing and angling is a big part of your life. Did you grow up angling? Is this something that your family has always done? Are you from Tennessee, where Little River Outfitters is? No, I grew up in Illinois and then moved down here and started fishing once I got here in Tennessee. The fly fishing is just a little better in Tennessee than Illinois. What made you take up the sport? There isn't, you know, it's not as big of a thing in, in Illinois. We don't, there's, you know, no trout. You have to travel away from there. And um, just my family wasn't really into it. We just, my brother and I picked it up once we moved here. Gotcha. And so Little River Outfitters is in Townsend, Tennessee, and that's right outside Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Is that right? Correct. We're right at the, by the Cades Cove entrance of the park. So what draws people to Little River Outfitters? What are they coming to this part of Tennessee and to the National Park to do? Great Smoky Mountains is one of the largest wild trout fisheries in the eastern U.S. We have 800 to maybe 1,000 miles of wild trout streams, varying from there's the native brook trout, and there's also um, wild rainbows and browns. The rainbows and browns aren't native to the Eastern US, but um, they're wild and that they haven't been stocked. They're self-reproducing populations. Okay, so hatcheries aren't responsible for their annual population levels. They're self-sustaining. And, you know, fly fishing, I'm an angler myself. Fly fishing can mean so many things to different people. You know, it can mean lake fishing. It can mean ocean waves. You know, it can mean Uh, mountain streams. So can you kind of paint a picture for us? What is fly fishing like 
in this particular park? The Smokies is small freestone streams, meaning that it's all groundwater that's um, dictating the flows. And um, being the Great Smoky Mountains, we have different elevations. You have the higher elevations, which stay cooler through the year. And then as the streams flow down the mountains, you get into the, the bigger, lower elevation streams. But it's all wade fishing. They tend, you know, they're definitely fishable size, but smaller streams than, you know, many people might be used to. Right. I remember when my husband was fishing uh, nearby, he used a one weight rod, which for people who aren't familiar with angling is, you know, the smallest, one of the smallest fly rods you can get. And he did it because the fish were smaller, but they're just so beautiful that when you're playing them on a one weight rod, you feel like you're, you're playing a much bigger fish. Yeah. And most anglers in the Smokies will use three weight to five weight rods. So you're still talking about some big fish here, even if they're in the smaller streams. There's the streams that um, have brown trout, which the Little River, the middle prong of the Little River, and then quite a few streams on the North Carolina side, like Lufty and Deep Creek. Um, the brown trout will get larger. Other species will, like brook trout in general, tend to be smaller because it all has to do with the food source. Mm -hmm. uh, they could grow as large as a brook, as a brown trout, you know, 20 plus inches in certain situations if they had an unlimited food supply, but their growth is limited to the available food. And so what's, what's limiting their food? Is it the size of the stream? Is it the colder winter? You know, what, what is limiting that food source? Well, size of stream, it's like the bug, the bug life. You know, there's only so much food. And when you have a high population of trout, they're all competing for that amount of food. So if you had less fish, then less fish are competing for the same amount of food and they can all grow larger. Gotcha. Gotcha. And fish population is, especially here in the Smokies, is generally dictated by natural occurrences. So like flood events at certain times a year, um, droughts, um, things like that. Okay, I gotcha. And so how many years now have you been, you know, working at the Little River Outfitters and, and coming to the National Park? About 23. Perfect. Then you're the perfect person to, to ask this question to. You know, the park has been undergoing a lot of changes, and some of them are just increased visitation rates. You know, it's one of the most popular parks in the National Park system. Some of it is changing weather patterns and, and changing climate and things like that. So in the time that you've been there, how has the fishing changed? You know, what ups and downs has this fishery experienced? You get natural ups and downs with, you know, years are different. So you have a couple years of drought and fish, you know, fish populations may drop. And then post those years when that fish population drops down, as things recover, those the, the remaining trout will actually get larger and then you'll have a couple of good years where they have good spawns and good water and fish populations will spike 
And when fish populations spike, they have a tendency, the size has a tendency to go down because you have more fish competing for that same food. So, you know, those are just natural ebbs and flows of, of everything. As far as like fishability of the streams, when I came with, when I started fly fishing in the Smokies, a lot of the high elevation streams were closed to fishing completely, you know, in an attempt to protect brook trout. And the fisheries crew and department at the Great Smoky Mountains National Park has been great and do a lot of research. And, and they found, you know, basically found that wasn't really protecting them. I mean, it, it was protecting them, but it wasn't necessary. So since then, they've opened up everything. So there's currently no closed waters in the park. You can fish everything now. Wow. So there's just a lot more territory for people to, to spread out over. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel Drake, manager of Little River Outfitters in Townsend, Tennessee. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. And we are back with Mr. Drake talking about fishing in Great Smoky Mountain National Park. So where are we in one of those natural cycles? You know, in 2019, facing the fall, are we in a, an ebb year? Are we in a high year? What's your kind of take on, on this season as we approach fall fishing? You know, it's hard to say without seeing, you know, having the numbers that the National Park Service has as far as, because they do stream surveys. They know year to year sizes and population and things like that. But last year, especially towards the second half of the year, was was pretty wet, which keeps water flow in the creeks. And then this year we started out pretty wet. And then right now water levels are low, but, you know, kind of at a seasonal low. So, um, and we've been having warm days, but we get cool nights and that helps reset the water temperature, which helps, helps protect the fish. Trout don't do well in hot water. Right. Of course. So as we are in the the first week of September, is this the best fishing time for the park? Or would you say the spring is, is a better time for anglers to try their luck? Spring and fall are better. Right now, angling or fishing can be a little difficult. Water levels are low. Water clarity is really clear. And that um, makes it, the trout can be pretty spooky. You know, they can see you easier. So in the springtime, you have a lot more flow. Water temperatures are cooler. There's There's a lot more bug activity in the spring also. You just have to deal with much colder temperatures as an angler, right? I mean, we're way up there in elevation in the Smoky Mountains, right? Not necessarily, because you can fish the low, like in, you you vary where you fish depending on the time of year. So early in the spring or even in the winter, 
you tend to fish those low elevation streams, streams that get more sunlight and will actually warm up sooner. Then a little bit of warming will, will make the trout more active. And then as you get warmer months and into the summer, then you're going to want to go early in the day or you're going to want to go higher on elevation where the streams are more shaded and stay cooler. Gotcha. So I'm about to ask you a question, but um, if you don't know the answer, because we talked about this a little bit yesterday, that's okay. I can always circle back with the National Park. But the question is, the National Park Service has been doing different things to try to increase the population of the fish in the park. Um, you mentioned that the studies they do, you mentioned that you know they've opened waters as their views on conserving the species have changed. So I was curious, you know, what you and the angling community hear about their different efforts and if you think you and your customers are able to see a difference already in the fish populations. Well, they've done reintroductions where they'll go in and clean out non-native fish and they have a, uh, a physical barrier that prevents those non-native fish like rainbow trout from getting above. And then they'll, they move trout in from other parts of the park. So they're still genetically pure Southern Appalachian brook trout. So they're not coming out of a hatchery or anything. They're just moving them into those areas. And since they've done that, they've expanded the, you know, the range of those Southern Appalachian brook trout, you know, closer to historical ranges. So that's opened up tons of um, many miles of water for anglers to fish for those brook trout. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, the brook trout are an iconic species for a lot of people. You know, they're beautiful fish. They're fun to catch. But as you mentioned before, they are very sensitive to warming waters. So is that a species that you're worried about as an angler as we move farther into the 21st century? Me personally, no. (laughs) (laughs) These fish have been here forever. I mean, this is where they've been since the beginning of time. And so they've gone through warm cycles, cold cycles. Like we had some really bad drought in 2007, 2008, and it killed a lot of fish in the park. And after that, the brook trout seemed to handle that better and actually moved down in elevation and populated areas that they hadn't been populating before. Mm-hmm. So they were able to weather that storm better than the non-native fish. Interesting. So you don't have to give away any secret spots or anything, but my first question for you is, what's your favorite place to fish in the park? And my second question for you is, if someone's interested in taking up angling, fly fishing in particular, but has never done it before, how would you suggest they get started? My favorite spot would depend on how much time I've got. (laughs) Like... I fished like the middle prong of the little river a lot, but it's convenient, which has a lot to do with, you know, where you're going. You know, if I had, you know, all day to go, then I might go across the mountain and fish the Conalufti River or hike back a trail. So a lot of it just where I'm going to go depends on, you know, how much time and what I'm looking for. 
as far as, you know, certain species of trout or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And if somebody wanted to, to get into fly fishing, what's the best way to do it in Tennessee at the park? To get in, the best way to do is take some kind of a class. And if you have a like a fly fishing store or something close to you, the best one is go stay, you know, go to your closest store because that's the one you want to support and they're going to be able to give you the most help. So it takes a little bit of time. Um, we have classes here and um, other shops will have little, you know, you can have a short introductory class. You can have, you know, a longer one-on-one group class or even, you know, private instruction kind of things. And you can learn on your own, but if you have somebody to help you, you can learn a lot quicker. Yeah, that makes sense. And my my last question for you will be for all the experts in the audience, which is if you have to have one fly in your fly box for fishing the park, what would you recommend someone bring with them? That'll vary a little bit at time of year. So the Smokies isn't as it's not a one of those places that you have to have the perfect fly. We have a big variety of different bugs in the park, but not a big quantity of any of those. Gotcha. So it's not as specific to you got to have this fly. Um, but if you're going to have just like two flies, a sinking fly and a floating fly, they'd probably just like anywhere else where there's trout, it'd be like a beadhead pheasant tail nymph and a parachute Adams dry fly. Or in the summertime, that dry fly would be something with a yellow colored body. Gotcha. You can't see me folks out there, but I'm making notes because the the park is within a day's drive for me. So I'm just getting some tips before before the cold weather sets in. So, so Mr. Drake, I just want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. We've been talking about uh, fishing in the park with Daniel Drake, manager of Little River Outfitters in Townsend, Tennessee. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. And now, a commentary. Here we are, nearly three years into the Trump administration, and there's still no Senate-confirmed director of the National Park Service. It's not entirely the president's fault. President Trump did, after all, nominate David Vela, at the time superintendent of Grand Teton National Park, last year for the job. But the Senate didn't confirm Vela before the last session of Congress ended, and since then, the Trump administration has yet to renominate Vela, or nominate anyone else for that matter, for the job. While President Trump is happy to rely on acting directors and secretaries of various federal agencies, a move that denies the Senate its right to get to better know how an individual might command and then either confirm or reject them, how the National Park Service is being managed is demoralizing to its far-flung workforce. Indeed, the Park Service has been led by deputy directors, quote, acting with the authority of the director, unquote, 
since the president was sworn into office back in January of 2017. While there is now word that P. Daniel Smith, the current de facto Park Service director, soon will be moving on, whether David Vela will be renominated for the director's job or simply serve as another deputy with the authority of the director remains to be seen. Does it matter? After all, the president's agenda will be carried out, whether a Park Service director is acting or has officially been confirmed by the Senate. Still, in discussing the lack of a confirmed director with high-ranking Park Service personnel, both active and retired, the disheartening effect on the workforce of such an absence at the top of the agency was pointed out to me. Let's not forget that it was just a few years ago, in 2016, that the National Park Service was celebrating its 100th anniversary. There was a great swelling up of optimism that year for the next 100 years, and record-breaking crowds turned out to explore and enjoy the national park system. Sadly, that optimism within the agency has been popped like a balloon. There had been a hope that the gaze might turn inward a bit to allow people to catch their breath and come together with efforts that were more focused on internal mission support kinds of changes, cementing the educational embrace of the mission finally getting better at employee safety, one Park Service veteran told me. Now, they went on, if a career National Park Service employee can't be renominated to the position, it sends another quite powerful message to the staff about belief in the career employees as a whole. As that individual pointed out, there has been no real agenda for the Park Service under the Trump administration. John Jarvis, the Park Service director under President Obama, said when he took the job that the agency, as he put it, has the best-run ships in the worst Navy. While Jarvis put together a strategic plan and had his ships sailing in the same direction, today's Park Service seems rudderless, and actions the administration has taken with regard to its leadership can't have been helpful. The administration basically forced Dan Wink, a long-tenured and well-respected park superintendent, into retirement and there are a number of regional offices being led by acting directors. Those moves have cut at employee morale, another superintendent told me. Then, too, there's the prospect of a significant upheaval in the Park Service via Interior's intent to reorganize its bureaus, a move that could both impede the Park Service's conservation and preservation missions and have political appointees calling the shots. Probably worst of all, I was told, the use of national parks as political footballs in the administration's directive to keep big parks open and misuse fee revenue to fund park operations was a serious blow to morale. Secretary Bernhardt's latest directive, that the Park Service expand e-bike access without going through the proper process, was another slap in the face, they said. Whether we see a Senate-confirmed director of the Park Service before the next presidential election arrives remains to be seen. But it would be a step, albeit a small one, in boosting employee morale. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. 
Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.